0: Hello, and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm joined, as usual, by Benjamin Redd. How are you, Ben?
1: Oh, it's been an exciting week. This is going to be a great episode.
0: Great to hear. So something very big happened this week. Lebanon announced oh, yeah. a sovereign default, and uh, we have uh, an amazing guest with us, uh, Marwan Mkhayel, economic expert, former head of research for Blum Invest, and advisor to uh, several ministers uh, in the current cabinet. But you're speaking on like your own personal terms yes. in, in this in this episode welcome to
1: the show marwan it's great to have you Thank you. I am happy to be here. I've got a, a, a tiny little anecdote, if, if I can squeeze this in here, just to let the audience know who Marlon Mikhail is. So a few years back, I go to this conference. Uh, I think it was on, like, financialization of real estate or something. And I pop in, like, at the end of this one panel, there's this guy named Marlon Mikhail up there. He's, you know, talking. He seems smart or whatever. His, his panel <laughs> finishes, and but he sticks around for the next panel, just, like, goes to the audience. And in the next panel they had this like high ranking official from BDL or something but it became clear throughout the panel that the guy from BDL didn't really know what he was talking about, and there there was Marwan jumping in, sort of <laughs> to save this guy, and like rattling off like circular numbers and like exactly like the the exact regulatory framework and stuff. And and this is stuff that obviously he didn't prepare for because it wasn't his panel. And that that was when I was like, who the fuck is this guy? I need to know this guy. This is this is who we're talking to uh, today, and, and so I'm very very happy that that you're on you're on the show. Uh, one, one of the definitely one of the top economic experts in the country. Uh, well, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, thank you for the
1: introduction. Okay, uh, so very quickly, we've got like one thing that is not financial news that we got to talk about this week, uh, and that's just the coronavirus update. Uh, of course, last week we had an entire episode on the coronavirus. Things have progressed since then. As of uh, yesterday, we're, we're recording this on Sunday morning. So as of Saturday, the number of cases in Lebanon had jumped to twenty-eight. Uh, still no deaths. There were six new cases on Friday, though, and six more on Saturday. This is the largest single day increases yet. Things seem to be getting worse. It's my point that the health minister uh, came out on Friday and said the containment phase is over, and a lot of countermeasures have been in, uh, introduced. Uh, recommendations. the The government is saying, asking you know bars and nightclubs and theaters to close. They have extended the closure of courts uh, and judicial proceedings and the closure of schools as well uh, until basically the the 13th to the 15th right now is when these closures uh, end up with. But at at the same time, last night I did sort of like a tour of Beirut. I went to Hamra and walked around and then I went to Shamezi and Marbechail and walked around and everything seems to be still open. There's fewer people out, but everything still seems to be open.
0: Yeah, it's not like the whole country is gonna shut down because of these measures. I, I mean, I can't even imagine it unless we have probably thousands or hundreds of cases. The whole country is broken. People are in Marum from Thursday to <laughs> to Sunday, spending lots of money anyway. So yeah. that's that's a different situation. We have a different kind of self-perceived immunity <laughs> to, <laughs> right. to to various things. But it's important, yeah, to to like stress how impactful this. Um, this press conference by by the health minister was on the public feeling because everyone was like, okay, now it's officially time to panic. And because people were, you know, more relaxed about it before, when they say containment phase is over, it means that we don't know where the virus is coming from anymore. That's basically right. what it means. So like earlier people, cases have
1: been traced directly to like people uh, from Iran, Iran or, or whatever.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this, this time it's just like, yeah, we don't know where the, this came from. So it might be we ha- that we have you know many other cases that we don't know about and it might be just uh, uh, infecting new people uh, as we go so this is why it's a different situation now so maybe you have to be more cautious than what we were we were recommending last week in our uh, episode about uh, the coronavirus and uh, one of the sad things that happened is that you know today when we're recording this on Sunday we're supposed to have the yearly march on the International Women's Day which is one of the nicest kind of celebration of of uh, like feminist uh, organizing in, in Lebanon and we're not going to have that. It has been postponed. Some groups are still going anywhere anyway, anyway but it has, it has been officially postponed. So uh,
1: As well as the elections for the uh, Order of Engineers. For the Order of architects. Engineers.
0: It was supposed to have happen on Sunday, 8, March 8th 8, and uh, we had a list of, um, a big list across the country, 150 candidates who are part of an independent kind of pro thawra pro-revolution kind of...
1: Um, when you say we, who exactly? do you mean? Like all independent political
0: groups that are part of the Thawrah kind of came together and agreed on one list called "An naqaba so the order of engineers is uprising you know the same slogan that we had Lebanon for Lebanon uprising uh, and it was exciting so they postponed it we don't know till when I don't know till when for sure, but uh, when it's going to happen, it's going to be an interesting battle as well. Because usually what happens is that all political parties come together, most of them at least, in one list. Even if they are big enemies, they come in one list to oppose the the independence. So we'll see if that's going to happen this time as well. We don't know yet.
1: All right, on to financial matters. Uh, This week we saw huge swings in the lira, in the exchange rate between the lira and the U.S. dollar. It actually broke 2500 this week. It it hit, uh, according to LebaneseLira.org, it hit 2650 to 2715 by sell rate on Friday. And and just to put this in perspective, like we're literally reaching into record-breaking territory here. The lowest that I have seen referenced ever for the lira is 2850 in September of 1992. Some people say it went as high as 3000 or whatever, but if we if we break 3000 for sure we are in uncharted territory that never uh, you know record territory we've never seen this before right is, is that accurate
2: yes this is accurate however you have to see that this was this was on 1992 and now it's in 2020 so you have 18 years and the inflation during these all these years so if it broke uh, Three thousand—it's in uncharted territory, but at the same time, it's not uh, like uh, if you want uh, to measure apple to apple, it will uh, be—it should be above four or five thousand in order to be uh, comparable to what it was at two thousand eight hundred in nineteen ninety-two. So don't be fooled by the numbers. No, don't be fooled by the numbers.
1: Uh, And and so on Friday, we had this very dramatic thing as well, where uh, Riyad Saleme, the uh, governor of the central bank, issued this circular telling the uh, exchange houses, no, you're going to, the the rate is 2,000 and you're going to enforce that. He he didn't say 2,000 exactly, but uh, it works out to about 2,000, right? Uh,
2: And this is why, the exchange rate went up because you cannot force a parallel market to exchange dollars at at what you think is the good rate so the good rate is only dependent on supply and demand of dollars if you are able to fix a rate then you would have fixed the official exchange rate and it would have stayed the same when you are not supplying enough dollars to the market you cannot fix the rate the market will fix the rate now, the bureaus, the exchange offices, are not applying this measure in the sense that they are closing down, in the sense that they will tell their clients, we don't have dollars. Yeah, 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 so, exactly. They are only selling to people they know that these people will not go and say to the central bank, oh, look, this one is not, because you have several importers who want only to get the dollars in order to bring them back to the bank as fresh dollars and be ready or able to import. So the exchange offices are only dealing with these people. They trust them. That is a mutual trust. Every importer has a exchange office, the one that he deals with. Everybody that is going on from somewhere else, the exchange bureaus
1: will tell them that we don't have dollars. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned this. this whole thing. Friday was just crazy. Uh, it, everything was just sort of thrown into disarray. Like you say, some uh, of the exchanges closed down. I, I heard stories about, yeah, other exchanges claiming they didn't have dollars. So yes, we'll, we'll take your dollars at a certain rate that is below the normal market rate, uh, but we're not going to give you any dollars. We're not we're not going to sell you dollars at below the market rate, obviously. And
0: those selling it, we're selling it for at least the lowest I heard was 2,400, up, up yeah, to 2,650. Yeah. And the spreads
1: so. were... Really insane. Like you, you would see something, you know, a spread of like, oh, you can uh, sell your dollars for two thousand pounds, but then if you want to buy them, yeah, it's like two thousand four hundred, two thousand six hundred something. Yeah, you yeah.
2: cannot regulate a parallel market because, by definition, it is a parallel market. <laughs> right, <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so it's an unregulated market.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 the other thing, of course, with this was just that everybody seemed to be holding their collective breath, waiting for. What was going to come out on Saturday, the Eurobond decision, uh, not that it directly affects the the Lira exchange rate, but uh, it, it's one of those things in the back of people's minds. They weren't sure sort of which way things were going. Hopefully, uh, this coming week, we'll see the exchange houses reopen with a much tighter spread around whatever rate, uh, which which means a more stable rate. The, the Lira depreciation this week also had had another effect, and that was just on the street, right? We we saw actually a lot of people coming out for, for the first time in a few weeks. A lot of people coming out and protesting in areas all across Lebanon. Uh, you know, you had it here in Beirut, in the southern suburbs, in Tahir, in Baalbek, uh, in Tripoli, and Sur, basically all over the country, people started coming out again.
0: Yeah was very interesting to see because it kind of it revived this uh, the aspect that is mo- less organized and more spontaneous about the revolution which is basically how it all started with tons of people just marching and, and protesting against living conditions in general and this was I'm sure I agree with you this was directly related to, to the Lira depreciation because it seemed like it's going in this uh, off the cliff right? It seemed like it's yeah. going in this direction where uh, we're not going to have, uh, like, our money won't have any value anymore. So people were panicking about that very seriously. Uh, but it's a great thing because we saw, as you said, these movements across the country and these protests happening in areas that have been quite calm for a while as well. So politically as well, it's, it's very important to have. Yeah,
1: and, and I don't want to oversell this. This wasn't like... October 10th numbers or anything like that, uh, but but it was uh, something significant, an an uptick uh, for sure. Also this week, we had a very, very interesting battle between the financial prosecutor and the banks. Um, So on Monday, the the state financial prosecutor, Ali Ibrahim, questioned uh, the heads of like 14 banks or something over money that had supposedly left the country since capital controls, uh, informal capital controls were imposed by banks. And then on Thursday, so this is this is the day after the protests started uh, ticking up. On Thursday, he issued an order that froze the assets of twenty-one of the of the banks here. Like. Uh, most of the banks, basically, and as well as freezing the assets of uh, their the heads of the banks yeah. and their board of directors. And this was this was a, a sort of like an earthquake, right? Like all of a sudden, the ABL, the Association of Banks in Lebanon, had an emergency meeting. Uh, they they went to speak with the president of the Republic, Michelle Aoun, and and then later on. Later in the evening, uh, they they met with uh, Ali Ibrahim, the the prosecutor, as well as uh, Ali Ibrahim's boss, sort of uh, the attorney general of the country, Hassan Alaydet. And Alaydet decided to stay the order. Uh, he said, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm not canceling the order, but I need to study it. We're, it's not going to go into effect quite yet." <laughs> so, so the Association of Banks in Lebanon seems to have uh, sort of put out the fire. But but it was it was a very it was an insane day, uh, you know, actually going after these bankers. And, and there were there were other complications like the order was super short. It it didn't really define what the assets were in a real like Ali Ibrahim had to come out later and and sort of clarify what he meant by bank assets and, and so it, it was sort of a roller coaster of a day Thursday, what, what's going on?
2: Yeah, the, the problem is that when you froze the assets of the banks, it's very difficult because you didn't define the assets of the banks. Then these assets, when you froze them, it will be very difficult for banks to deal with their correspondent banks abroad. So the other issue is that freezing the assets of the banks, meaning maybe banks cannot do anything with their clients anymore. So how they can move their pay for their clients, their deposits, and how it will go from their assets somewhere. So this is, if you want, it was not well prepared, the order. You can uh, freeze the assets of the board of directors and chairman, but it means nothing to freeze the assets of the banks, like 20 banks in Lebanon. I think it was wise to uh, freeze this order because things should be done in a different way. I mean, it should be done by the BDL or the Bank of Lebanon, the Central Bank of Lebanon, or uh, you have the Investigation Committee at the Central Bank that should deal with these issues and say what should be done and the measures that should be implemented in that respect.
1: I I understand that point, and I, I agree with it to a certain extent. But at the same time, both BDL and the SIC appear to be asleep at the wheel. So what can you do when you have regulators that aren't doing their job and you see all of this money leaving the country, these bankers, uh, you know, according to reports, very much taking advantage of the situation? Yeah, but
2: after all, the problem is that the central bank didn't issue an official capital control. This is the main problem. There is nothing in the law that prevents banks from transferring money outside of the country. So you say ethically they should not... Yes, but in the law, there is nothing that prevents them. So if the central bank had issued a circular imposing capital control officially and saying what can be transferred, what cannot be transferred, then if you are not abiding by the circular of the central bank, you will be breaching the law. But when there is no law for that, when the law allows you, the existing law allows you to transfer money, the only way that you can go to banks and tell them that you should not do that or or it's not ethical is that you're not treating equally all your depositors while you are letting some depositors transferring their money and you're not letting the others transfer their money. So this is the only way maybe legally that you can Get to the banks, but it's a long way on in the legal uh, process.
1: But I mean, you, you you understand the frustration that when regulators aren't—they didn't BDL didn't issue a circular to uh, uh, to actually institute capital controls—they're they're asleep at the wheel, you know. Uh, so what what else can you do other than you know something that maybe maybe isn't a a typical uh, action, but you've got to you, you've got to introduce some sort of price for this
2: no no i I agree but this is why i'm telling you that maybe the government should issue this the circular the central bank is still insisting on not officializing or institutionalizing capital control but these should be institutionalized i mean by no means you can let banks every bank do it on its own let all the banks abide by one law one circular so uh, this is the normal thing that <laughs> right, that, that right. took place in all other countries. I mean, you cannot let it, it. It's a chaos now. Yeah, and it should not remain like that. But uh, what
0: I think what was interesting to me during this day because it was a big day, right? From the day before, actually, we started we started having this uh, shakeup of of things with with Brahe uh, Ali Ibrahim, the financial prosecutor, looking at the banks. Uh, the day that he announced his decision, or the decision was was made public we had this big kind of propaganda machine that was kind of turned on suddenly. All kind of politicians, experts, etc., coming on TV saying, this is crazy, you can't do this. I think the most interesting one was kind of a, a big speech or a big monologue done by George Ghanem. I don't know if you saw that, Marwan, on, on on the show of his brother, Marcel Ghanem. George Ghanem is like a historian who kind of appears on his brother's show on TV. It's one of the biggest shows. And he went on this monologue where basically he's defending the banks in a way that I've never seen the banks actually defending themselves in this way it's just like <laughs> yeah like giving this this making this case that you know everything that people are feeling in terms of how the banks are part of the problem how they should be responsible for you know handling some of the cost of the solutions how you know they were wrong about this and this and that and how the economic model was basically to serve them he was trying to fight against all of this with very very kind of pro- banks propaganda and I was happy because for us to reach this point where there's like the biggest show basically in the country is dedicating 15 minutes for someone to just make the case for the banks is extremely different from what we saw we've been used to for the last you know two, yeah the, three the decades. fact that they
1: felt that they needed to do that you know, or some or somebody felt that he exactly. needed to be right.
0: because before the banks were always talked about in the media as like the backbone of the economy the you know the saviors of the Lebanese economy because it's taken for granted yeah yeah because they're making profits while the rest of the country is doing bad so it, it must be great that they're you know being able to hold the the state and the, the economy
1: right success means you did something right right yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so it's just it's just an interesting development to see like how there is an actual war of ideas now and how ideology has kind of how economics have kind of penetrated into politics which it should have done for a long time yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and and noting politics i'm i'm just going to note this and leave it there just for our listeners information uh, ali ibrahim is seen to be close to nabi perri the head of the amal movement uh, speaker of parliament uh whereas debt is seen to be close to the future movement. I'll just leave that there, let you, you make any sort of conclusions you want to uh, from that. Uh, I'm not gonna say anything on it. <laughs> All right, so on on to the, the main show. Uh so this this entire week everybody was talking about what was the decision going to be on the Eurobonds. So Are we gonna repay the uh one point two billion dollars due to creditors on Monday, the 9th of March, at six thirty last night, uh, Saturday evening. We got our answer, Hassan Diab addressed the nation, and he said, we're out. We we're not going to pay it, or rather, we are going to suspend payment. Not that we won't pay it or pay a portion of it eventually, but we are going to suspend payment, and, and we're going to enter into dialogue and uh, in negotiations with the people who own those eurobonds right now, of which includes local people as well as international funds and investors.
0: So obviously, the big news was the was the announcement of the default
1: for the first time in Lebanese history.
0: Definitely, and the the restructuring of the debt. This is the big news, but also the kind of the framing of it was interesting because, first of all, it was a let's let's talk about the the kind of the the form before the content, how the aesthetics. This was a very meticulously written speech that is extremely populist in its approach, and just exactly what people needed to hear without anything that kind of might provoke people. It was like, I, I appreciate the person who wrote the speech. I don't know if it's Diab or someone else, but this is someone who really knew what to say because there was this, first of all, okay, there was an interesting and a bit of, of a weird part in the beginning where he's like, we have an independence battle now, a battle for, uh, to achieve liberation from an enemy who's stealing the Lebanese people's present and future and
1: you know it sounded cu- quite
0: dramatic
1: because yeah it, but it's also like true it's it's not really a, an exaggeration I, it I is
0: think. but but it's very very weird to hear anyone in the Lebanese ruling class speaking of this historic because you know who is this enemy i don't know is it bounkaudi or ashmur like it's not really <laughs> yeah. clear who this enemy is but it's, it's the debt it's the debt okay that, that's a very weird enemy Wait, <laughs> did, did did you write the speech no <laughs> uh, i don't have anything to do with this <laughs> Uh, anyway but it was good because i think we both agree he was kind of more honest about the state of the economy and what has been going wrong than any kind of other prime minister that
1: yeah and, and usually we're used to hearing happy talk you know yeah. the lira is fine no pro- you know and and finally we have literally the head of government coming out and saying everything is not fine
0: yeah, all our economic and monetary policies were shit. We're gonna change them. Like this is interesting because he kind of also gave like a diagnosis or a chronology of how things happened or why we reached the the point where we are today.
1: Ah, uh, so so in this very eloquent speech, uh, well crafted speech, he ah uh, he announced that you know no payment on the uh, ninth March eurobond, uh, and apparently this decision was made unanimously within the cabinet. Correct.
2: Yes, uh, everybody voted for it. And it's normal because uh, we cannot pay the March 9 euro bonds because we don't have the money. In fact, we have the money per se, but you have priorities that you have to abide by these priorities, which is you have to import sweet fuel uh, medicines. So this is why, I mean, it's not proper to pay creditors not being able to import the necessities for your people. So it right. was, for me, a normal decision, and uh, I was advocating for it two months ago yeah. that we should uh, not pay the euro bonds and as soon as possible, we should declare that or send a letter to the creditors that uh, we don't want to pay. Now, it came a little bit late, but it's still better. Late is better than not to show. Right, right, okay. Right. So th- this is why, uh, for me, it's uh, the right decision, the repercussions now of this decision is that the government will have to go into negotiations with the creditors and uh, there will be a committee for creditors it will represent all the creditors and the government will negotiate with this committee to see how we will restructure the debt. At this point in time, the, when the negotiations will start, the creditors will say, okay, what is your plan for us? Because what they want to make sure they know we are, our debt is not sustainable on the long run. What they want to make sure is that it will become sustainable for the future. So we will be able to repay the debt. And in order to be able to repay the debt in the future, we should have an economic and financial plan that is viable, that is credible. So this is the most important thing. This is what the government is working on in order to show to the creditors that we are serious. We are. We will do some reforms. Uh, we will put the debt on a sustainable path and in the future we will be able to pay you back your money because if you go now and do a haircut of 40 40, 50 60 percent on your euro bonds then creditors want to be sure that what is left for them the 50 percent, for example that they will still own they will be able to get paid for these 50% in the future, not to come also in two, three, four years' time and say, okay, again, I cannot
1: pay. We should uh, uh, do the same negotiations uh, again and again. You want to do it right the first time, get it done, and and not go through this again and five And and
2: this is what the creditors want. They want to see something credible. And here it's uh, very difficult to see how the government will do it without an IMF program. Because we have a financing gap in uh, the coming four or five years of twenty five to thirty billion dollars that we should come up with. what we need from fo- as foreign financing because it's you have a difference between our imports and our exports every year. when you say foreign financing, you mean just dollars, dollars, right? We need dollars around twenty five to thirty billion dollars for for the for, next for, for the next four or five years. okay. so who? will be able to give us this amount. And who's,
1: who's willing to give us that amount, That right? amount.
2: Yeah, this is the most important. And all donors are not ready to put any penny without an IMF program. Because actually, we lost our credibility in the previous years, in the sense, Paris 1, Paris 2, Paris 3. We said that we will do a lot of reforms, even said and we promised a lot and we didn't deliver on anything yeah and this is why now they said okay you want the money you have to go to the IMF and do an IMF program for three, four years now the IMF will put some money we will put as donors we will put some money the World Bank will put another so and you restore credibility and once you restore credibility you can relax the capital control and money will start foreign direct investment will start also to come and things will move on in the right direction again. But I don't see how... I mean, I'm not that with the IMF intervention because you have a lot of people who said, no, we don't want an IMF intervention in the country and all of this talk. For me, we don't have any other alternative. It's not that I like the IMF. If somebody has a different alternative to bring these dollars from abroad, I mean, I'm happy to take it. Absolutely. Free money, right? (laughs) So, so, So... If we don't have any alternative, we should go to the IMF and negotiate a program with the IMF and start implementing the measures that we will promise in the program.
1: Yeah, and and, and just to sort of rewind for those of you in the audience that maybe don't follow this quite as closely uh, as we do, basically the the normal financing system for Lebanon it has has fallen apart. Usually those dollars would come from remittances from abroad. And those have really dried up in recent years. uh, People just aren't sending dollars back in the numbers that they used to. And therefore, we've got this really, really big hole. And so either we plug this hole with dollars from somewhere else, or we start having a really, really big problem with paying for basic stuff like imports of medicine, imports of wheat, imports of fuel, like you mentioned.
2: Yeah. It's really something that and for me to mention that the an IMF program, what is it? It is that the IMF we negotiate an economic and financial program with the country. Now that dollars inflow have dried up, we need, if you want, artificial injection of dollars. And this will come from donors, in, if you want, in the first few years, in order to restore confidence, and then private sector remittances and other inflows will start to flow again in the country right. and we should know that our economic system that used to be during the past 30 years is dead yeah we should look to change how the economy is being run because we should move towards more productive economy we cannot stay uh, with the rentier economy style of things that people will put their money in the banks and will get 10 15 percent this is not a viable system we should change the system towards more productivity in the sense interest rates should go down and they have started and they should go down even more in order for the economy to get more investments because if you have you are at an interest rates of
1: 10 and 15 percent there is no investment that is viable no, Absolutely. Uh, why, why should I take a risk on a new business when I, I can? the bank's going to give me free money? That's true.
2: And this is why this should change. And people will have to invest again, will have to make uh, their money from their work, from their investments. And this is how we should be moving on for the future. Now, uh, going back to the IMF program, it's a program that we should negotiate. People are against some people are against the IMF because they said that it in the 90s it failed in Indonesia or in other countries and okay, it's not the perfect institution, but it has evolved since the 1990s till now. the IMF is not anymore the this uh, if you want capitalist institution that will come and impose all capitalist measures no they have now a social uh, branch they can they deal with social issues they are uh, keen on having a social safety nets in their programs so it, it has evolved if it they say it imposes uh, tough measures but these measures we have to do these measures let's be realistic we are at a point in time that we have to do all the necessary measures in order to get out as fast as possible from the crisis. Because you have two ways, or now you take the tough measures, you have more pain right now, it's like you need a surgery or you will take a medicine. You will take a medicine, it will uh, lessen your uh, your feelings of pain, but it will not heal you. But if you do the surgery, you have the pain, After the surgery directly, maybe you have some real pain, but then you are getting back to normal. And this is what we should do. We should have maybe some pain during the coming year, but then we go out of this crisis more quickly than before.
1: And this is the important thing for me. Yeah. Diab, you know, in his speech, uh, he, d- he didn't actually mention the international monetary fund or anything like like that, but he did, uh, introduce sort of like this three pronged, uh, strategy that the government's going to be going after. And d- defaulting is just part of that, right? So the first prong that he said, uh, was, was to get public finances, right, put it on a sustainable path. And that includes the default, but it also includes sort of unspecified, uh, fiscal measures, uh, You have measures
2: that should be taken to reduce
1: the expenditure of the government. You have to take out all
2: expenditures that are unnecessary or funds that used to be and you have lost the corruption that used to be in these funds and all of the public administration. You have to make it right. On the revenue side, you have to try also to fight here uh, corruption in the government to improve your uh, the compliance of people with the taxes, paying their taxes. You have to do lots of things in that direction and maybe you will have to increase some taxes, even if these taxes are not a popular decisions. So you have to take unpopular decisions. And I think for more than once, the President of the Republic uh, mentioned that everybody will have to sacrifice a little bit so in order to get out of the crisis. And we, you can argue that people should not sacrifice because it's not their fault, yes, but at the end the crisis is there, and everybody should sacrifice and the banks I think they will be there. they will be sacrificing the most because all their equities now are gone, yeah, okay, there is nothing left, so the shareholders don't have any penny anymore in the banks, like any penny their their the their capital the capital the the equity of the bank. Right, right. Not on, a, on a net and basis. The, the on, banks on, are on a are a in net basis, are basis because now you have lots of non-performing loans, and you will have a haircut on the debt. So they are hit from. They will be hit from different uh, measures that the government will take, and this is why there, we are talking about recapitalizing the banks. And here, uh, the current chair... And that was
1: one of the prongs in Diab's speech, right? So you had to mm-hmm. write the fiscal ship, restructure the financial sector. He, I, I think it was interesting. He pointed out the ridiculousness of having a banking sector that was like four times the size of the economy. He actually said these, You know, this, this is a very... It's sort of refreshing uh, to hear that, right? Um, and, and then he also said, you know, and then introduce reforms, sort of structural reforms, uh, battle corruption yes. that, that, that would make... Uh, to sort of like set the environment for economic growth to flourish so that once we, you know, plug the hole that we're talking about with, with the dollars from some source, at, well, during that time, we're, we're setting the stage so that Lebanon can really start being productive and, and not need, you know, dollars from the IMF or anybody else.
2: Yeah, but even, I mean, you need the dollars from abroad, even if you do all these reforms. There is a period of time of one, two, three, on the short term, you will need dollars right. from abroad. I mean, where right. you, you
1: can't change the economy overnight.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the issue. So, And this is where the IMF is of essence. The, the alternative of not bringing the IMF is that what is left at the central bank in reserves will go down to zero. Yeah, because it will uh, be
0: spent on uh, financing imports. And, and, and therefore therefore we'll all
2: of this. So yeah. this is why it's important not to go to this level because you cannot know what will happen when the central bank is out of dollars. I was in a conference and somebody told me that from the audience that now we hit rock bottom in the crisis and we want to do the revolution, we want to move all the parliamentarians out, we want to do all this. I told him, look, you're way above rock bottom. You didn't see the rock bottom yet. The crisis is in its beginnings. If you want to see the rock bottom or how it will look like, watch Venezuela. You mm. can see how things will evolve if we don't do things in the right way. So this is why I am with bringing the IMF to just really also oblige the government to do the necessary reforms first. Second, it will be important that the government do the structural reforms. And the, in the, de- the statement of the government, its declaration, it mentioned and there are two very important points that here if you if the population or if the people wants to do something is to pressure uh, in order to do or to implement these measures which are the independence of the judiciary and this is the prime minister said that it is on its way to be done to be achieved and this is a very good thing the second one is to lift banking sec- secrecy on all public sector employees and this is very important because here you can start to see who has stolen the money Why in not?
0: the public sector. Why not on everyone?
2: Yeah. No, no, you can do it on everyone. But if you want to leave the bu- the banking secrecy on the normal people, you can. Now, the most important is to lift it on the public sector employees in order to reduce corruption. Yeah, but if, uh, if that, they that channel... This is the most mm, important.
0: But you have to target not only the, the officials themselves, but people around them as well and, you know family and advisors etc so it would be it, there's a good case No, no, no. Well, when,
2: when i'm talking about public officials it's more on the of course i mean the ministers are uh, uh, liable but for me it's on the lower side because this is where the corruption starts also i mean you, you have all the people dealing at the in the port of beirut customs they are talking about them the judges and getting lots of gifts and you have people doing with all what is related with land registries and all of that so this is these are the main three points and the the income tax uh, controllers so this is where most of the corruption is in the government and here in addition to contractors and things of that but here for the contractors you have the new procurement law if it is voted, and it will reduce corruption a lot mm. in this contracting businesses,
0: um, I I I want to push back a bit on on what you were saying, especially in terms of the idea that you know we have one way to do things uh, more or less. I mean, it's really not a science, right? It's there's there's no either historical evidence or anything outside of specific economic models that says you know there's one way to deal with a crisis like the one we're dealing with today and it's not really about like for example whether the imf comes or not but on which conditions it's not a a secret that the imf has for a long time been adopting a certain framework now called the neoliberal framework of economic like policy where basically uh, it sees things from pers- from the perspective of economic models a lot, from the perspective of a lot of other indicators such as you know economic inequality and uh, poverty, unemployment, a lot of things. So, and now they're improving, as you said, they're improving definitely in the direction of thinking about the poor, not in the direction of. You know who's winning and who's losing from these economic measures so what they do now is usually you know partner with the world with the world bank and have like this safety net program to protect the poor when they're intervening in a country because the economic reforms will basically increase poverty so they institute this kind of safety net for people just to not not to start that to death but that's different from having uh, an economic reform plan that basically is based on the idea of economic justice right it's not the same thing it's not it's not self-evident that we need that all of us need to pay a price in the resolution of this crisis because not all of us benefited from it at all. And certain people benefited much more than other people and these people have kind if, of the responsibility if, if, even though, but,
2: but people who benefited will pay more, of course. If you are obliged to restructure the banks and maybe you will go to a bail-in, I mean, transferring deposits into shares, then these are the big depositors who will lose in this direction. So, and what you talk about economic justice, I mean, it's a very wide thing that for example putting 5000 Lebanese pounds on the fuel on the gasoline
1: you this, this you, was this was a, you, a reported you, you, that you, this was going to come down you, the, the you, pipe
2: you, yeah. you think that this is unjust or just
0: well you have to s- sh- see how what the state is offering versus what it's taking i mean so it's, the state it, is I not mean, giving in you general public it's very regressive
1: it's very it's broadly it's, regressive it's, it hits a wide swath of the And, population. and there's it's no no, no, no but, public yeah, transport but,
0: but, system but, that allows people not to spend money on gasoline let me
2: tell you one thing you know that rich people are using more gasoline for their big cars than poor people okay so in this direction you are making the rich pay more and you can take two thousand of these five thousand that you are getting to pay back for the poor so these are the kind of things that you can do for example on the electricity you have to increase the tariffs You can say whoever is consuming less than 200 kilowatt per month, we will not increase the tariff, we will continue to subsidize. But as it is right now, you are subsidizing everybody. And you are subsidizing more the people who are consuming more electricity. So So you you are mm. are subsidizing big shots more than you are subsidizing the poor. So when you say I want to increase the tariff for the people who are uh, spending or uh, consuming more than 200 kilowatt per month, it's economic, it's just and you will increase it a lot for these people in order to make them pay more so and to reduce the deficit of EDL so these are kind of things that you can take them in a more equally or more social, socially acceptable even though the people at the first reaction it will be that no this is not acceptable you are increasing the price of gasoline you are doing this and that but in any case we have to take some unpopular measures. I mean, we are in a crisis, and not one crisis. We have a multifaceted crisis. I mean, you can go from, we have a financial crisis, we have a fiscal crisis, we have a, an economic crisis, we have a social crisis. And in order to resolve this huge accumulation of crises from 30 years of wrong economic and political policies and all of this, I mean, it's not easy. Yeah. and we will have to suffer a little bit in order to get up quickly or we will continue and this is what we were talking about before or people were talking a lost decade for lebanon it will be the coming mm. decade if we don't now do the surgery in order to go up quicker but this is not putting aside Things that will improve transparency, things that will improve, uh, that will reduce corruption, structural measures that will change how the economic system is working to improve productive sectors, knowledge economy, to do the right infrastructure, and, and we and we need a, a
0: social protection uh, system, right? We don't only need a safety net; we need a social social protection. protection but but need, but
2: here mm. it's most about government services, and this is why I usually always say I am not ideologically on the right okay or liberal or i want that uh, we privatize everything but i say that we are in a third we live in a third world country in lebanon and we should accept that this fact and not say that we compare ourselves to france and europe and switzerland and the scandinavian countries we are way far we are like congo and angola and all of these countries when once you accept that we know that corruption will not be over in a night but we will have to do small steps like the independence of the judiciary and lifting banking secrecy things in order to move towards uh, more, uh, if you want, transparent system, less corruption. And government services, government is a is a bad manager. We have to accept that in all third world countries, government is a bad manager. And this is why I'm for a PPP start of things. Uh, say, I mean, to start the PPP. Public-private partnerships, but let the private sector manage your services because he is a better manager than the public uh, sector.
1: Uh, yeah, I I think that we're we're too short on time to get into a full-fledged debate on the, the pros and cons of privatization and PPPs yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that. That's a that is a big big topic. Uh, but can I go back very very quickly? Um, and ask you a political, not economic question about, you you mentioned uh, the the proposed uh, 5,000 lira increase in taxes on fuel. Uh, There there was also a report about uh, potentially what could be coming down the line, an increase in the the value added tax uh, from 11 to 15% or maybe even higher. Do you think the Diab government can survive something like this, the backlash that it would cause? For me, it's not
2: a matter of that the government... I don't know if the government will apply these, by the way. So these are my own... I'm I'm just discussing these to to say maybe they will get some bad reactions from the people, but in essence, they won't be bad as measures. Now, politically, I don't know if it will survive or not. I mean, it's... But the government, for me, should do what is right for the country
1: regardless of whether they end up out of office or not?
2: Or not. Because you have politically driven reactions, because you have people in the opposition, politicians in the opposition, that will also drive their people in the streets against the government if the government apply non-popular or unpopular measures. And this is a thing to take into account. But for me, people who really want things to improve in the country they should accept some of the measures otherwise getting this government out of office for example i mean what is the alternative right now staying another six or ten months without a government for me we have to really see things in a realistic way it's good to be to look at the utopia but this is why i emphasize that we are a third world country and we should know how to study our steps forward as people. What reaction is good for the country and what reaction is bad will destroy everything in the country, what is left in the country. So this is very important for the population to take into account for any reaction that they will undertake. But if these measures are part of a complete and comprehensive plan by the government to boost the growth from one side, improve transparency, reduce corruption and do some really uh, unpopular measures, I mean the, the people should take it as a big picture because the future will be better.
0: But I think we can both agree, I mean I have a different perspective on this obviously, but I think we can both agree that you can never trust politicians, especially in Lebanon or anywhere in the world to Be thinking of the interest of everyone, so people have a responsibility to always be like, You can do this, you can do that, but don't uh, steal more of my privileges or of my rights. You can just, you know, impose austerity on things that are important to me, etc. Like, people have the right to resist certain policies and also the responsibility to do that. As much as they have the responsibility to think about the comprehensive picture or the big picture, as you're saying, they also have the responsibility and if they don't do it no one else will do it no one else will be like defending the interests of the people in government but, as we've seen but over who the said years. that this
2: is the interest of the people i mean you, people in general now we are going into a philosophical uh, thing but people <laughs> yeah. in general do you think they know really their interest i mean if, if they really know their interest maybe they wouldn't wait till now to do anything people were uh, electing all these uh, political parties to the parliament so for me the actual government is one of the best stated if you want with the uh, figures in it that there is no corruption people not involved in corruption these are good people and really they have the competencies to do things but things will not be, I mean, they have to take non popular measures. Especially now that the economy is in a recession, you have government. And if you know, if the government wants to leave the exchange rate floating, for example, the official one, the gasoline uh, price will increase by more than 70%. Yeah. Okay. So the government is now sub- effectively subsidizing the price of gasoline. So the government is doing things to really keep things under control. But at some point of time, you have to do things
1: the right yeah. way. We've said a lot about sort of like the big picture and, you know, the IMF and, you know, reforms and stuff like that. But just quickly before we, we uh, wrap up here, can we zoom in on the small picture? Because there's a lot of questions right now about what exactly this default means for uh, for banks, for regular people and everything. My understanding is that there are like accounting rules that now the banks, because the sovereign has defaulted, uh, they, they have to mark their euro bonds differently on their balance sheets and that would mean that banks are basically all of the banks in Lebanon are now insolvent. There are suggestions, people saying, oh, well, they're going to, that because of that as well, that means that banks are going to stop dealing in dollars basically altogether. The $100 you can get out per week for the past few weeks from your bank, that's going to stop. Can can you speak to those concerns? Is yeah. that accurate? First off, it- not all of the
2: banks will become insolvent because not all of the banks hold uh, eurobond. Okay, it depends. Each bank, how much does it hold as euro in eurobonds? And now they have sold a lot of them, so already they have taken the losses because they they when you sell it at now the the prices of uh, nowadays twenty five and thirty cents you are losing a lot as a bank and you have to account for these losses to take provisions. So these are uh, already in their account. The losses are already accounted for. Okay. What is left? Yes, they have to to mark to market. And yes, there you have several banks that will become insolvent. And for me, already they are insolvent because they have high non-performing loans. This is why we need to restructure the banking sector along with restructuring the debt. And restructure the banking sector, not only banks, but we should restructure also the BDL. Because also BDL has accumulated lots of losses in the previous in the financial engineering schemes that the central bank has done uh, since 2016. So the restructuring will uh, will have to be done all over. I mean, or oh, the whole banking system now. The and the debt and for me restructuring the whole economic way the Leban- Lebanon has been running its economy over the past 30 years. And it's now the occasion to do all the necessary reforms, because we have to do them, and let's do them the earliest the better, in order that our uh, when we go out of the crisis, we, oh, we go out in an exponential way, we don't get stuck or trapped in this low growth or recession environment for the upcoming decade.
1: Okay, well, I I think on on that note, uh, we're gonna have to just leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it.
2: I thank you, and uh, I, it was a enjoyable uh, discussion. Absolutely, Thanks absolutely. For thank you.
1: All right, and we we are scheduled to be off next week. Uh, <laughs> multiple things are, are going on. If something crazy happens, uh, I don't know, we might try to do a special episode. We'll see. But if not, we'll see everybody in a couple of weeks. And until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Marwan Mikhail. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
0: The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red. Produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.